But today we're in Psalm 27, and I just want to read the beginning here, the beginning chunk, um, and then kind of jump off of that. And it begins this way. It's a Psalm of David, uh, Psalm 27. It says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and they will fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. And it's wonderful language. It's the Psalms. It's, it resonates with us. We love the Psalms. Um, but what do we really make of this? What does it really mean? And so if we're looking at David and David writing these words and he's writing about uh, though an army besiege me, and though war break out against me, he's not just being poetic like we would be if we talked about armies or wars. Um, David is actually talking about armies and he's talking about wars because that's the kind of thing that fills his every day or in this particular instance, the thing that, that causes him distress or fear or anxiety. And it's hard for us to sometimes grapple with what that would look like. So typically what you do is in, in Bible interpretation or the discipline called hermeneutics, again, from the, the Greek god Hermes, which was the messenger god. So it's, uh, hermeneutics is the discipline of how do you interpret a message. And typically what you do with an ancient text like this when you're trying to apply it is you apply what's called the hermeneutic bridge, meaning um, David is talking about war and armies. Okay, well, we don't really face war and armies in Bend, Oregon. Um, but what's the principle at the heart of war and armies? And the principle at the heart of this uh, is really the things that cause distress or anxiety or fear, the things that make you feel out of control. Those are the, what you would kind of call the universal principle at work, right? Uh, the insecurity that comes from war or armies. That's, that's timeless, it applies in all places and all times to all people that there are things that cause insecurity and fear. So that's the timeless principle. And then you would continue the, the bridge over to the present day and say, what does it look like in our life today in Bend, Oregon, if we're insecure? Or if we have anxiety? Or if we have fear? Or if we have, in some sense, brokenness? What does that look like in our life? And so it was interesting. I sat with the team this week and I... I asked them that question, what does that look like today? And just asked them to, to throw out words that would, would kind of be the picture of our life um, today in this kind of a context of Psalm 27. Here are some of the things they came up with. Um, shame. Fear. Broken, betrayed, or unresolved relationships. Uh, betrayal is something we don't talk enough about. Um, you even just lose a friend that you thought you'd invested a lot into or something like that. There's always a latent choosing of another or, or rejecting of the self and, and it hurts and that's a part of life and we're all dealing with that to some degree. Secret sins or past sins, hidden things under the rugs but, but things that we're so intimately aware of and we've learned just to mask money, insecurity and anxiety that comes from money. And it's not just 
how do I get enough for this month, but how do I sustain that month after month after month after month? Like, how, how do I really provide for my family? How do I be viewed as responsible? What do I do with anxiety or panic attacks? Do I tell people about it? Do I, do I stuff it in? Um, it's not really the thing we wanna put forward. It's not socially acceptable. What do I do when, when those or, or similar things cause a lack of control or make me feel out of control with my family or my relationships or my finances? What, what about the bad patterns that come into play? I don't seem to control, but they seem to control me. And I don't wanna tell anyone because then it's in some sense saying I've got a, a problem I'm neurotic or, 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 or broken because I can't control my own life. I can't take control of things. And so I try and hide that as well. What about failure? Failure of a business, failure of dreams or goals, or failure to be for your family what you thought you should be or they thought you should be. What about the fear of being seen as a failure? I go through this every week. Um, I, I'll think of like an example that I want to share or, or something that would illustrate something out of my own life. And then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of filter that out and go, well, it would prove the point. But um, maybe I should find a different illustration. What about depression that lasts long? What if it lasts a decade? What if it's really dark? What if we've given up on the American dream and we realize that that was some kind of a fantasy that we grew up with? What if we think there's an inability for things to get better? What if things are only gonna get worse and we kind of know it? How do we reconcile that? The fear of that closing around you like an army, like a war, something that suffocates. What about fear of suffering? The older you get, the more real it becomes. And you also begin to feel like you have more to lose. You're tapped into the relationships, to the family, to the depth, to legacy. And then comes helplessness and vulnerability. And then all throughout this, whether we talk about being single or whether we're talking about in a relationship, whether we're young or whether we're old, there's the isolation and the existential loneliness that I think we all feel that we're always crying out for affirmation that never quite fully gets satisfied by the relationships in our life, that sometimes it gets scratched, sometimes it's there, but never at the level we want it to. And we know that we can't ask for it because then it wouldn't really be authentic, it wouldn't really fill our bellies, but we're always somehow, to a degree, lonely and isolated. And we need help. Our culture tells us that we shouldn't need it, um, and the church often disappoints us by not providing it sufficiently or possibly even contributing to the problems that, that we face. I don't know about you, but um, I at least get the kind of score that I, I, I got my first couple of years in college, like a 60% um, percent on that, that little test. Um, it hits close to home with a lot of things. And so we read the Psalms, and I think if we begin to enter into the Psalms, we can take 
the idea of war or armies, and we can bridge that into these kind of insecurity, struggling, difficulty, dark days things, and then we can begin to say, how does this work, our, uh, work itself out in our own lives? But here's the deal. That's the typical exercise of biblical exegesis. That's the typical exercise of, of scriptural application. But I'm, I'm kind of struggling with a different aspect of this today. I can apply some of the emotions of David into my own life, some of the emotions of the psalm into my own life, but in doing so, I'm not really changing the fact that who I am and where I stand in the worldview that I have um, is what it is. In other words, I am a white 41-year-old American male living in a town that was ranked as the seventh manliest city, the next big thing in entrepreneurship, Dogtown USA, because we all have way too many dogs, um, and always ranks in the top three to five as uh, most outdoor sports places, best outdoor sports places to live or best places to retire or whatever it might be. I, I live in a completely and radically different world than what David lived in. And I've grown up in a completely radically different world with movies and media and social media and all this than David did. Um, when I was a kid, we used to go to Burger King on Wednesdays. Wednesdays was Burger King Day. Um, and I used to get a Whopper Junior. And my mom liked onion rings. And I still remember this because it was, it was big time. And I learned that I could ask them not to put a tomato on my Whopper Junior. <laughs> and that has defined me ever since. <laughs> um, I, I am uniquely situated in the, in the world with deeper things than just how I understand things. I, I've been formed and shaped a certain way. And I, I think that it's a lot easier to provide answers than sometimes it is to surface the problem. Jesus faced this. He had Pharisees who were shaped a certain way and they were having a, a whole conversation and trying to have a conversation with him that missed the point. Do you know what I mean by that? They, they, they wanted to, to nitpick on the law or they wanted to critique him or they wanted to figure out how we could puff ourselves up to be, to be ple uh, pleasing to God in ways that wouldn't require the Messiah or sacrifice or atonement or forgiveness that way. And, and Jesus said they have ears, but they don't hear um, that they're old wines because they, they don't understand that the way they're shaped is, is not able to receive some of the deeper truths or some of the fresh truths of what's going on. And I think in the church, we typically do a really good job of provi uh, providing great biblical insights without really questioning kind of the deeper foundations of how are we going to ultimately take and work those insights out and are we ever really understanding the shape that we've got? Because if we talked about people in the Congo today, 
they would hear this psalm differently. And talking about armies or war would be more than just my existential loneliness or my depression or that a friend betrayed me. It would be something wholly other. Does that make sense? I'm, uh, I'm the son of an immigrant. And uh, the f- people ask me all the time with justice stuff, where did that begin? And I, I'm like, you know what, I can tell you right where it began. And then it took a long hiatus. Um, but it began when I was about eight. And my, my dad came home one day and said, we're going to sponsor a refugee family. Because we, we play out our own experience, don't we? Uh, and so my dad had come over, family of five as, as an immigrant. And, and because of that, when there was a need or an opportunity, he then did the same. He brought a family of five uh, into our home that lived with us for about a year. And then I watched my dad walk them through language and naturalization and everything else. And the first day they were there, uh, it took all day with kind of a lexicon for, it was, it was a, a married couple with a kid and then kind of their two cousins. So it was a family of five, but, but blended. Um, but it took the, the dad uh, most of the day to write out a whole letter to talk about people eating people and boys with guns. And to hear stories later of the teenage girl or about to be teenage girl and how she would... Uh, as they were fleeing from Cambodia, they were, they were Cambodian uh, who had lived through the Pol Pot genocide, the Khmer Rouge, and right at the tail end of that genocide had fled into neighboring Thailand, and then from a Thai refugee camp were brought over and resettled by the State Department, and we were kind of the sponsor couple. But the, the older girl that was one of the cousins or whatever uh, talked about holding the baby in a tree with boys with guns underneath and, and trying to keep the baby from crying because if the baby had cried, that maybe um, they would have died. And they were one of the few families that were able to make it to Thailand without being harmed too much because they were on the very, very tail end right before Vietnam came into Cambodia and put an end to the Khmer Rouge. And because they were on the tail end, most of the landmines had been blown up by, by earlier people fleeing to Thailand. So one of the ways they made it was because a lot of the landmines had been detonated. Um, So this passage would mean something different to them than it did me. But it goes deeper than just war or armies. I watched as as the boy who was about my age and went into my grade in school, and, and I was this kind of proud brother figure. I was going to defend and I was going to go with him and show the way, pave the way. But it was really strange. It was all new to him. He'd seen people in work camps, basically in the rice fields, just under a socialist regime, regime just rice every day. And people being tortured or killed if they stepped out of line. And this was his experience um, as, as an adolescent. And so he comes in and all of a sudden it's, he's going to go to school with me all day. He was a couple years older than me. I was, I was eight, nine when he was going to school. Would have been nine and then ten when we moved away. But now he's going to school every day with a jean jacket and a backpack 
in classes where we go out on recess and run around. And then on Fridays, we'd go to Thrifty where they had ice cream. And just think of America through his eyes. It, it's a radically different starting point than my starting point. And I think our starting point is part of the problem that we have to surface that, that somehow we live in such a blessed country, such an amazing country, but it creates in us a starting point that sometimes we have to navigate through life. There's a book out right now by Malcolm Gladwell um, called David and Goliath, fittingly so. And he, it's a book about advantages and disadvantages. And one of the interesting things that comes up in the book is that he talks about the suicide rate in privileged countries compared to countries that, that are undergoing a lot of disadvantage. And it's a lot higher. And why would that be? The countries that rank as the happiest countries have the higher suicide rates. Why is that? Well, he goes on uh, like he does. Malcolm Gladwell's a fascinating writer and, and uh, journalist and does a lot of deep research. But what he shows is why in Norway or Sweden you'd have a higher suicide rate than you would in North Korea where you would think people would have a, you know, a, a whole different framework on life and, and depression. is because of a syndrome where when our expectations are really high and we fail to be able to live into those expectations or put it another way, when culture is, is really happy and we find ourselves unhappy, it, it creates a real crisis. Whereas North Korea, uh, when culture is really sad or depressed or, or difficult or challenging, and we find ourselves just in the middle of it being challenged or depressed, we, we kind of band together in those kinds of instances and, and fight for life together. And so that's why you get this interesting syndrome of a little fish in a big pond versus a big fish in a little pond and how that would play itself out. Now, Mo Song from Cambodia, living in Milpitas, California, right near San Jose, and going to Thrifty Ice Cream and getting to go to school every day and wearing a jean jacket with a backpack and watching Knight Rider with me, where cars jump and talk to you. There's so many David House, I don't, I don't even know which one to pick. Um, David Hasselhoff comments, but there's something really different about that experience than me growing up not really doing my chores, eating a lot of ice cream, um, watching a lot of TV, having the way paved for me, and beginning to develop the illusions that um, pleasure is a right, comfort is a right, that I'm American, that I'm in, in the, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and so it's always gonna be easy, and it's always gonna work out to my advantage. That's what I mean by, by shaping, by worldview. 
And so what, what I'm trying to say is I think today I'm struggling with the part that we don't usually bring into the equation. We, we, we can sprinkle spiritual truths on top, but what about who I am? And the illusion that I live with. And here's the illusion. The illusion I live with is that my best day should be my everyday. Um, you might not believe this, but my last day at Clemson, I went golfing with some friends. Um, by the way, Clemson, South Carolina is beautiful, has some of the most amazing sunsets you'll ever see. And I went golfing with um, some of my friends. On the back nine, I was one over par. And that's like re real, not my like trying to make you think that I can golf, because I've never come close to that since. But deep down inside, I think that that's the kind of golfer I am. <laughs> I mean, I honestly do. It's the clubs that let me down, um, that I just haven't uh, warmed up or, or played a couple rounds, but I could quickly and easily get back there is what I believe. And I think it was a, a miracle, once in a life thing, probably in reality, but, but I carry with me this sense that that's just who I am. Does that make sense? Culturally, we do that too. We have a hard time letting the mess of reality be the everyday. And we set up a perceived tension that somehow the illusion, the best day should be the everyday. Bend should be this idyllic town every day, not the town where people bring a gun to school. But that instance maybe is a symptom of, of a deeper reality that all of our lives are not the magazine picture or our happiness quotient on, on a regular basis doesn't necessarily match the commercials, right? I have a lot of friends that are hurting because of a court case verdict in Florida yesterday that was in a highly charged case where race was involved. And they really hurt today. And most of my white friends want to talk about the rule of law and get into the case. Well, why was the verdict what it was? Because of the rule of law. Well, look, the rule of law doesn't mean anything Justice is what means something. Laws are to reflect as best as they can justice. And just because rule of law happened doesn't mean that families get full justice or that communities that feel like, in this instance, young black kids can be killed just because. Or a couple months ago, the young girl who at midnight, her car broke down in a nice affluent neighborhood and knocked on the door of a white man and he opened the door and shot her with a shotgun because of a racial bias that he had. Her car broke down, right? So I have friends that live in a country where that's the reality and, and I, I really honestly believe as a white person with white friends, we wanna go back and think that in the 90s we had promise keepers and we reconciled and, and that 
that's our, our best day and, and this, this race stuff, it's not supposed to be here anymore and so we want to kind of push it away and just say, no, our best day that we think, you know, we, we thought it was our, we, we want to believe that's still true. And so whether it's my golf or whether it's kind of the community we live in or whether it's the country we live in with regard to race, we want to believe the illusion in America that our everyday can reflect what we think is our best day. So let's continue with Psalm 27. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. And one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, to be able to find peace and closeness to God and intimacy with God. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. And we're talking about a literal tent here. And set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. David is talking about salvation. He's talking about deliverance. He's talking about rescue. And what he's doing is he's talking about a theme that resounds all throughout the Old Testament where God is the God that we cry out to who is big enough, who cares about his people and who eventually or someday or when really needed will deliver and will save his people. And what we find is that salvation is a concept in the Old Testament that has everything to do with the messiness of life. That it's not always going to make it go away, that our best days are not always going to be our everyday, but that somehow when we really need it, God will deliver us or will save us or will bring us to himself that we might be found with him and have peace in that place. But salvation was a very earthy reality in the Old Testament. So David started here. I think the women in Congo start here. I think a family of five from Cambodia started here in this psalm with the need for deliverance in a very earthly, earthy, organic kind of way. And this is where language betrays us because where I start with the word salvation is at a youth camp and an evangelist preaching to me about how I can accept the offer of salvation that my soul would be saved and that someday I'd be able to go to heaven when I die because my sins are paid for. Nothing about the human context. Nothing about earthy or earthly or, or organic realities. An offer of heavenly spiritual salvation that has elements absolutely of truth in it. But that higher level understanding of New Testament salvation is built on the lower level understanding of salvation that pervades the Old Testament, that reaches out to God in prayer, that is hungry for, for, for deliverance 
and the messiness of life and reality. And so language matters. And over here in this context, there's a deeper understanding of what life is and how God may be able to work and to rescue and to deliver in the context of that. Over here, salvation becomes a bit of a distant thing when I die. And deliverance begins to feel a little bit more like, God, what are you doing to help my best day become my everyday? You know, we've, we've coined a phrase around this. It's actually a heresy I would offer up to you. It's called prosperity theology or the, the prosperity gospel, that the good news is somehow that God doesn't want you to ever be sick or ever have poverty, and that if you just had enough faith, you're, you would get your best life now. No pun intended. And so I live here, I don't know about you, but I live here reaching out to God, trying to ask God or to seek God or to understand how God is really working today, now, and tomorrow to really make my best day my every day. I want my marriage to be better than yours. I want my kids to be better than yours. I want my bank account to be secure and to allow me all the options I want. I want this church to be better than other churches. I want to sit as a king on my throne and to look at my empire and feel like I have arrived. That's in my heart. I was raised in a country that made me aspire for greatness, that everything would be the way I want it to be. And so I can easily take the slider button and take every category of my life and move it to the highest and say, now that, if God was really big enough or strong enough or loved me enough, that would be what he would give me. Right? And when he doesn't, I become a little fish in a big pond again and I don't understand how to grapple with my identity that church is hard and that if we do it right, it probably doesn't grow very fast. That my kids, no matter how hard I try, are gonna make mistakes. And that my love can't be because they're a reflection of what I I want for them or, or a reflection of my glory but that my love becomes a self-giving love, that it, it will always be there regardless of what mistakes they make. The same kind of love God has for me. And, and my marriage, um, if it was up to Tamara, it would be perfect, but I'm involved. <laughs> um, and my finances, and I don't know, anyone here feel like your finances are great? <laughs> Um, if so, don't tell anyone because they'll be looking for some help from you. I have an illusion in me and, and it's the problem. I think a lot of us in this room, in the culture that we've been in, shaped by this consumer culture that we've been in, have an illusion in us and it's attention and it's a problem, and here's, here's where it comes down to. 
Um, I don't want to give that illusion up. I don't think you do either. We can, we can admit it, and we can nod our heads, and we can, we can understand it, we can see it, but I'm trained, I've been trained that my happiness is somehow connected to that illusion. And that if I let go of that illusion, all of a sudden I have to embrace a gospel that says I might suffer. And a gospel that says I might, I might have seen my best days. That I might have a lot of trials ahead of me or that, that money might always be a problem. But that somehow in the middle of that, I can still find God and know peace and have intimacy. And I look at that and I'm like, I don't want that. I want the God part, but I want the prosperity part too. So I don't want to let go of this illusion because if I let go of it for one second, truth might get in and reshape me and that might have to remake my life. I don't, I fight that. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know that too many of us are sitting here going, here God, let me offer up my illusions of happiness and pleasure and goodness for my life, my family, and, and my, my sphere of influence. I don't know too many of us that are looking to put that on the altar. And I look at friends that grew up in other countries and their starting point is so different. They're able to come to God in such a different place and there's a deficiency that we have because of our starting place. We have to talk about it more because look, I love answers. We do an answer service after every service. I love being able to tell people as I, I travel around the country, it's like, our church is an open book. They're like, sure, no church is an open book. I'm like, no, really. We got like 1,300 videos answering any question anyone wants to ask, proving that we're an open book. Doesn't mean the answers are right. It means we're not hiding anything. Except for the stuff down here that we bring to the, to the conversation. That's what I'm talking about, the problem that needs to be surfaced, the worldview, the stress, the tension, the illusion. David's interesting here because this is his psalm. Now let's pick it up again in verse seven. We've talked about the armies. We've talked about David dwelling in the house of the Lord. Now in verse seven, hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face it's what David's heart says to his, his mind. His, his, his heart says, seek God's face. Seek his face. I mean, these psalms are, are human. In your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. You're the only thing I'm holding on to. Uh, if I lost you, I would lose everything. You're the only thing I want. Though my father and my mother forsake me, though my clan or my people reject me, though the people that are supposed to affirm me or love me fail to do so, I've got you. The Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out their violence. David wrote this psalm, and it's very human. But here's the interesting thing about it. One, it's a prayer. And two, it's, it's a, 
one of a set of prayers. Most of the Psalms were written by David. What does that tell us about David's life? It, it tells us that David's life was lived in the place where he was able to keep writing prayers like this. His whole existence was defined by a, a reality that was incredibly difficult and messy and that he kept taking that to the Lord, that he continued to need salvation and deliverance, that he had to continually be reminded of the goodness of God and that that was his real one true hope, that this defined his life. It was his identity. So we go to the Psalms as Christians in America and we read a Psalm and it's a prayer for the day. But I, I don't know that we really grapple with the theological importance of the Psalms, that these Psalms, if we really understand life correctly, are going to define our days, not just our one bad day. That maybe all of our days don't reflect our best day, but all of our days reflect David's every day. Do you see the difference of taking a psalm in isolation as if none of these things are written in time or sequence um, versus understanding these as the pages that, that evolve or flow out of David's life that in many ways is the pattern for our life. Jesus sits on David's throne in the line of David. There's something incredibly human about all this. So I think when we read the psalm, we're reading a prayer. We can teach on it. We can educate on it. I could preach on it and really try to inspire about it. But at the end of the day, it's a prayer that shows us a shape or a posture of David's life. Now, there's an interesting thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. The boomer generation, by and large, and generalizations always fall down at some point, but there's a reason we make them because there's an element of truth there. But the, the boomer generation loved Sunday morning church. They, they also loved building things. It's a builder generation. And so we, we, we have great big institutional churches that are kind of built out of that around services that are really dynamic. The millennial generation is on the other extreme. By and large, they tend to be a, a Monday through Saturday-minded group. That the show or the entertainment or, or the whatever might be the thing that happens in the institutional gathering is less what they're concerned about and they're more concerned about the home or the dinner table or a drink with a group of people and what life looks like intersecting there or, or what life looks like in the public school system or with the homeless in the community. And so you get these two extremes and like with most things, I typically land in the middle of two extremes. So I've been reflecting a lot on what does it look like to have a Sunday morning that's the best that we can do and a Monday through Saturday that's the best that this community can do as well. What does that look like? And one of the things that, that you see emerge right away is that Sunday morning typically you'll, you'll find two different words that are used for it, um, at least the, the talk time, the message time. It's preaching and teaching. Preaching tends to speak more to inspiration. Teaching seems to speak more to information or education. But both of these lack the deep shaping reality that, that 
comes about in discipleship. Discipleship is the word we use for when we have elders or, or teachers in our lives, not, not on stage, but in our lives, working on us, shaping us as iron sh- uh, sharpens iron. And so what happens Monday through Saturday is deep discipleship. It has to be in concert with the teaching or the preaching. They have to be the same message, but they both are necessary if we're really going to reach the deeper issues because what's lower holds up what's higher. So I've been thinking a lot about just church and what a, a spiritual community is and should look like. What does it mean for some of us in, in some sense to peel back layers of of American thinking to try to replace it with Christian thinking because we don't want to just add Christianity uh, Christianity onto an American identity. We want to be Christians as our primary identity who are witnesses in America. Does that make sense? Those are two radically different realities. So in some sense, we have to go backwards. That's hard to do in preaching and teaching. It requires discipleship. It requires wisdom. You know, we pray to God because we love our life. We do. We care about ourselves in our own emotional state. So we pray to God out of that love of self. Here's an interesting thing, though, in Proverbs. It says, those who seek wisdom love their lives. So we've got a whole prayer book here in the Psalms talking about people passionately reaching out to God for deliverance and salvation. The very next book, we've got Proverbs where it's talking about finding discernment and knowledge and how to maneuver the messy realities of life is one of the ways in which you love your life. Wisdom that God grants, wisdom that's personified in some sense and calls to us, uh, that beckons us to live the way God would have us live. And so we see prayer and we see Proverbs and we see the need for discipleship and depth and a community of faith that's going to be a Sunday community but a Monday through Saturday community as well. And I think if we understand that best, we're going to also be able to read this psalm as a lament. And that's where I want to end today. Let's finish reading this in verse 13. David concludes and says this, I'm still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. There's something fascinating about waiting in Scripture, and that's that it takes a lot of work. When you're talking about David sitting in in the pocket, the tension, living the question with regard to armies and enemies. Waiting isn't some, some radically passive thing. It takes every ounce of your being you've got to sustain in that spot. I just came through a year of the most difficult waiting I think I've ever had. And what's amazing is in the last week, it's, it's pulled through like a slipknot. And I'm like, wow, it, I didn't do anything it just resolved. Waiting on the Lord, it just resolved. And then I was like, wait a second. I, did, I, I lost like 500 hours of sleep this year and got an ulcer. I mean, I did a lot, but I didn't do anything. Does that make sense? 
Well, if David can't fix his own problems and he has to take them to the Lord, and if we're saying that there are people in our own community or African-American communities who are lamenting legal decisions. By the way, legal decisions always define and shape reality. It happens with Dred Scott. It happens in the civil rights movement. You see that legal, so it happened with a, a presidential election and hanging chads. Legal decisions define and then speak to reality. And that's why you can get a whole African-American community saying this case in Florida says something. If I'm a parent of, of a young African-American boy, it says something about my fear for my child in this society. It says something about whether I feel welcome in this society. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like legal decisions say something. And those people, my friends or your friends, they look at this and they're like, we can't change a system of racism in America or that people have hidden biases of how they view people. I was on a plane a month ago and, and sat next to an African-American and, and we're sitting there for 10 minutes talking. One of the most gregarious guys ever um, in his mid-30s. We're sitting here talking and then right before the door closes, a woman walks on, comes down and sure enough, she's got the window seat. And I watched her body language curl up, sit in her seat with her purse and never once looked to the side while this gregarious guy tried to engage her for about 10 minutes and then gave up. And I realized as sad as that was, that that's probably not the first time that he's experienced that. We, we have a society that has these embedded, hidden things that other people can see more than we do, and they can't work on it. So they take it to God, and they pray that things might change, or that, that their, their children would be protected, and that, that psalm means something as they wait on the Lord. And if they can't work to fix that situation, how am I going to work uh, certainly I can change my own, my own issues and, and ways of seeing reality, but I can't come in with my answers. And I can't come in heroically like I'm just gonna make it all better. And so here's the thing. We have to learn how to lament the brokenness of life. We have to learn how to look at marriages and lament the brokenness of marriages. We have to learn how to grieve with parents who have children that have lost their way because there's pain in that and those kids matter. And we have to learn to grieve with women who are mistreated or minorities who get ground up in a system that wasn't shaped in some sense equitably. We have to learn how to sit there and to grieve those things. The messiness of life. Because if we live with this prosperity gospel, we're just gonna come in and go, well, you don't understand. Your best day should be your every day. And you must be doing something wrong or misunderstanding life. Or, hey, that thing in Florida was just an anomaly but the gospel is all about you being able to transcend that and have your best day now. And in doing so, we will be doing such an injustice to the dignity of that human being and the messiness of their circumstance. And so we need to learn how to come over here and sit in these psalms, whether it's ourselves or the people around us, and lament that this world is broken.
and that salvation speaks to this brokenness as well as where we get to go when we die with regard to to heavenly or spiritual salvation because God loves us. God cares for us and God wants to find us in truth in the messiness of our circumstances. I want to read a prayer in closing uh, taken from a book called The Valley of Vision and it's a collection of Puritan prayers. And it says this. O God, thy bounteous goodness has helped me believe. But my faith is weak and wavering. It's light dim. It's steps tottering. It's increase slow. It's backslidings frequent. It should scale the heavens, but it lies groveling in the dust. And Lord, fan this divine spark into glowing flame. Lord, awake faith to put forth its strength until all heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast out. Amen.